Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Well, it's um, very obvious that the world that we live in now is offering so much entertainment and pleasure and leisure, so much that... um, enough to drown planets in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And the aim of the devil is very clear, and that is to keep the dead men and women dead. And the people of this world, their conscience doesn't prick them anymore. Why? Because they're too busy singing and dancing and laughing And sinners are clapping and drumming their broad and easy way to hell. Now, sadly, what what do we know about the church of Jesus Christ doing in these days? Well, rather than weeping for those ignorant souls, rather than pleading and urging them to turn away from their death, The churches, by and large, are cheering those sinners on. And we'll begin noticing that even many people that claim to be Christians showing signs that they love what the world loves. And when believers begin to love what the world loves, we know that there is something wrong going on. So much of the world nowadays, more than ever, has infiltrated the Christian living such that the demarcation line that ought to divide between the church of Jesus Christ and the world is so blurred and quickly fading away. Uh, We can hardly distinguish between who is a faithful soldier of Jesus Christ who's willing to live and to die for the cause of the gospel and who's not. My, My dear beloved brethren, We all have to watch out for this. The false religion of the rich, foolish man, whose belief is stated clearly in Luke 12, 19, when he said, take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Whom God rebuked very sharply and said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you, this false religion of worldliness is getting sold to Christians by truckloads, and the church of Jesus Christ is bleeding, because everywhere, and for the most part, the church is buying this false religion, and it's bleeding, and it's breeding a sin of complacency. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to be spiritually mature anymore to see that there is that cloud of apathy hovering over Australia and even the Western world by and large. Where are the warriors of faith? And what happened to those lovers of Christ of old who for their joy and their delight in God were willing to fling away their comfort, their ease, their convenience, 
And we have to ask ourselves, are we growing in the zeal of John the Baptist who said, he must increase and I must decrease? Are we imitating the passion of Paul the Apostle? Where are those men and women that would rise up and stand with Paul the Apostle when he said in Acts 20 verse 24, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And more importantly, and for the message of this morning, today, how do we kill this sin of complacency before it kills us? The answer in a three-letter word, even any Sunday school child could answer it for us. How do we kill this sin of complacency? God. Steve Lawson rightly said, and I quote, Tell me what you think of God, and I will tell you how you would respond to the temptations of this world. A high view of God leads to holy and godly living. A low view of God leads to complacency and to apathy. Everything in one way or another hinges upon your view of God. And I want to tell you that there is nothing that is more important than to know the greatness of our God. Amen? So I titled this message, Encountering a Holy God. Part one. You can ask Benoit to invite me again to uh, preach part two, but we'll start with part one. How's that? Well, for that, would I uh, please ask you to open to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter six, and we'll be going through the first four verses. Isaiah six, one to four. I'll be reading through um, um, Nasby translation, this is the Bible that we use in our church, so please forgive me if this is not your um, translation, my understanding from um, the passage that we saw today in the morning, it's ESV. Anyhow, Isaiah 6, 1 to 4. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Just to give you a little background, 
is what was happening at around that time. It was 740 BC when Isaiah encountered the Holy God. And at that time, there was a rapid moral decay. Worship of Baal, offering sacrifices to idols. And there was a huge political threat. The national security threat was upon Jerusalem where the Assyrians were building up momentum, gaining power and pressing real threat. And the only one person that was holding everything together, King Uzziah, just died. And in this vision, in this scene, Isaiah here is inviting us to come along with him and to behold this holy God so that we would taste a glimpse of his majesty. And I trust that by the end of this message that this would cause us to be inflamed, our hearts to desire to be hungry more of that God that Isaiah saw. The outline will be very simple. Um, The three points for this outline would be the first one, the position of God, the second, the holiness of God, and three, finally, the worship of God. So we start with the first one, the position of God. And in verse 1, it says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. The first thing Isaiah saw as he entered this marvelous scene, it was not the angels. It wasn't the temple or the house or the smoke that filled the house. What did he see? Or to be more accurate, who did he see? The Lord sitting upon a throne. Now please note, that Isaiah saw none other than the pre-incarnated Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He couldn't have possibly seen the Father because in John 6, 46 tells us that no one has seen the Father except the Son. And in John 12, verse 40, it tells us more specifically that Isaiah said this because he saw His glory, that is Jesus' glory, and spoke about Him. It was Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnated Son of God, that Isaiah saw. Now it says there, I saw the Lord. Now there are two Hebrew words that um, translate to the word Lord. The first one is the word Yahweh, and that speaks of the nature of God, the essence of God, who God is is Yahweh. The second, which is the word that is used here, is the word Adonai. And this word Adonai is a title that speaks of the sovereignty of God, the immense power of God. So, the Lord sitting upon a throne. It would mean that the Almighty God, assuming this position of absolute power and authority, reigning as a victorious ruling king. Psalm 99, 1, the Lord reigns. 
Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Psalm 103, 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So what is the connection here between the death of this King Uzziah and the vision that Isaiah saw? It's like God is saying that though the earthly king has died and though there is a rapid moral decay and there is a national security threat and the future is looking pretty dim, but the divine king is living and is well. He is still on the throne. And what is, he, what is he doing? He is judging. He is ruling. He is reigning. Isaiah 40, 28. Isaiah says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. In other words, God doesn't get tired and says, stop, hold on, you know, I need to catch my breath. God never retires. God will never submit his resignation. So Grace Community Bible Church, I bring to you a word of encouragement. Human rulers, you know, they, they, they come and go, but God rules forever. The whole world can be falling apart around you and your circumstances may not be making many sense to you, but I stand upon the word of God and I say to you all that God is still on a throne. And please note how he's seated, lofty and exalted. Or in your Bibles, ESV, it says high and lifted up. This is the position of our God. This God is infinitely higher than any mountain of trials that you're experiencing. He's infinitely elevated than any hill of arrogance in the heart of man. This God is way above all other thrones. All other thrones are way beneath the throne of this God. Why? Because the one who is seated on his throne has created all other thrones. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created, heaven and earth, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, all things were created through him and for him. So the Lord Almighty is resting on his throne and no one can challenge him. No one can compete with him. And it ought to be our desire to lift him up high. He made us. And then he redeemed us with his precious blood. So we ought to lift his name up high and magnify his holy name. And we read further and it says, 
with the train of his robe filling the temple. What does it mean that the train of his robe filling the temple? If you go a few generations past us and um, if you would uh, have been invited to those generations and uh, to, to those weddings, sorry, uh, back then, uh, if you recall, the brides, they would walk down the aisle and, and they would have this wonderful long um, train that is attached to, her, to their dresses, the brides back then. And uh, the bigger and the longer the train, the marvellous the scene would have been at that time. And you can just imagine... Um, if you would see this marvelous scene where the train would be filling the, the platform and the steps and, and the aisles and the seat and the seats, you would say, Wow, this is splendorous, this is incomparable, this is wonderful. And so just like that, it says the train of the Lord's robe is filling the temple, and you cannot but just imagine there is this majesty upon majesty, this awesome, splendorous glory upon glory of the Lord. And you would have to conclude that this is not an ordinary robe that belongs to an ordinary king. No. This is a glorious robe that belongs to a glorious king. There is nothing in its temple that is not touched or influenced by this God and his majesty. What's the application of this? We've got to align our heart of worship. We've got to proclaim everywhere the position of this God, whether in a church or at home or even street corners. This is the position of our God, high and lifted up, exalted on high. And if we are to declare this awesome position of our God, what is it that we ought to be declaring? What is it that we ought to be proclaiming? Well, what is it that sets God apart from all of all his creation? The holiness of God. So we come to the second point. Let's meditate and reflect what it means that our God is a holy God. So please look with me. We'll skip that one verse and we'll come back to the second verse later. But look with me at verse 3. And have a look at the angelic beings and how they're, what they're declaring about God. They're saying this, holy, holy Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy. What does it mean that this word is repeated three times? Well, uh, nowadays when you write a document and you want to emphasize something in a document, what do you do? You, uh, you, you highlight and you turn it bold or italic or underline it. But back in those days where most of the communication was done orally, you would repeat the same word several times. And so this was the emphasis that the um, angels wanted to emphasize, the holiness of God. And please note, again, there's nowhere in the Bible does it, 
that it says that our God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or even on the other extreme end, anger, 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 wrath, wrath, wrath. It's holy, holy, holy. What does it mean that God is holy? Let me give you the misconception that we have. People would say, well, holy means sinless. But that's exactly what righteousness means. Holy means that God is unique. He's so unique, so incomparable. Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you? The answer, no one. Majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds. Isaiah 40, 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. God stands alone in his splendorous glory without equal. God in his holiness, is set apart from all of his creation. Yes, he is involved in his creation, but he's not influenced by the world he created. And if you bring any attribute of God, any, you will have to find that he's incomparable to all his creation. Why? Because God is holy in every way. Let me give you two examples so we understand what this means. God is holy in his righteousness. Now, what does that mean that he's holy in his righteousness? Some say, well, it means God is righteous. Well, that's good. That's right. But so are the angels. They're righteous. Oh, but, but when we say that God is holy in his righteous, righteousness, meaning that he's sinless. So are the angels. They're sinless. They don't sin. Does that mean that God has equal? You see, when the scripture depicts the righteousness of God, it portrays him not just so that, not that he doesn't do wrong, that he does what is right. Not only that, but he is the one that decrees what is right. He is the measuring rod of righteousness. His nature defines the law that the angels have to comply to. So God is righteous, meaning he sets the law. The angels are righteous, meaning they obey the law. When we say that God is righteous, meaning he defines the moral standards. But when the angels are righteous, meaning they comply to those standards. God gets to set the law and the angels have got to conform to the law that was set by God. God is holy in his righteousness. He's incomparable, he's unique, and no angel in heaven would ever be able to compare his righteousness to God's. Again, just another example so we can get the point. God is holy in his power. What does it mean that God is holy in his power? 
Now, if I would ask you, what is the most powerful nation in this world, in all of human history, what would you say? Well, I guess it's, it's not fair for you to answer that question because we know that there is, right now, as we see, there's a shift of power from the Western world to specifically China. But if you would go back, let's just say 10 years ago, uh, you would say most likely America, right? I mean, I've got enough nuclear bombs to detonate the whole earth seven times over, and they would still have leftover bombs. Now, does that mean we can compare the American military power to the power of God? Well, if, if we say yes, then we still don't understand what it means that God is holy in his power. You know, suppose that we come up with technology. We've just invented a new technology whereby we can see and hear microbacteria talking to each other. And let's just say that through means of amplification of, of their voices, you, you hear one of these little microcosm bacteria saying to another, I'm, I'm bigger than you. Then, then you grab your microscope and you just look through it and you say, yep, this almost invisible little creature, yes, it looks like it is a little bit bigger than the other bacteria. So I agree, that's true. But how irrational would it be, brothers and sisters, if the large bacteria would say to the other one, that since I am bigger than you, therefore I am more like a human. That is absurd. This is nonsense. And the scripture, when the scripture speaks of the holy power of God, it tells us that God created the world out of nothing. He said, let there be light. And all of a sudden, time, space, and matter were created. And when God created the world, that beautiful grass that I just looked at outside, and the trees, and the parks, and the rivers, and the oceans, and the earth, and all other planets, and the sun, and all the other stars of this galaxy, and the millions of other galaxies and the whole universe came into existence out of nothing, all but with a word. And when the scripture tells us that God upholds the world with the power of his word, it means that those atoms in you and the molecules and the cells and the DNA and the skin tissue and the nervous systems and the greenhouse ecosystem and the universe that is pulled together, how the moon is orbiting around the sun, or sorry, around the earth and how the earth is orbiting around the sun. All of that, God is upholding with the word of his power with the power of his word. And he does that. And the scripture tells us, he measured the heavens by the span of his hand. Meaning, 
from his thumb to his pinky finger. What does that mean? It means when God created the universe, brought it into existence, and upholding it to him, it's like a, a, a child's game. It's like a little kid drawing a, a little butterfly or building a sandcastle. Just so easy for God to do this. And how dare we men think that we could ever compare anyone to this almighty God. You know, if your arms are long enough to wrap around them all the trees of this world and all the oceans and the rivers and the earth and all other planets and even the whole entire galaxies, you're still infinitely smaller than our God. God is holy in his power. And this puts God's promises in a different perspective, does it not? It puts the promise that no one can snatch you out of my hand in the right perspective. It puts the promise that you are guarded by the power of God in the right perspective. And for lost sinners... It puts into perspective what it means that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living and a holy God. You don't want to anger this almighty God. You don't want to rebel against this mighty God. You certainly don't want to experience the fury of his wrath. Now, let's go further. It says, notice here what the angels are saying. The whole earth is full of his glory. There's holiness and there's glory now. What's the difference? Well, holiness in heaven, God sitting on the throne, it's the invisible beauty of God and his glory is on earth. The visible, awesome beauty of that God. You could say that the glory of God is the expression of his holiness. The whole earth is full of his glory. You see, not only that God's train of his robe is filling the temple and the smoke is filling the house, but God's glory is filling the earth. There is so much filling going on. And for God's glory, meaning the revelation of his awesome power and awesome righteousness and awesome sovereignty, when that is revealed, it is filling the entire earth. You look west, you look east, you look up north or south, you see nothing but the glory of God. This external visible beauty of God is filling every square inch of the earth. Whether we could literally see it with our eyes or not, it is true. God's glory is filling the earth. Now what does that mean? It means that the mighty God rules with absolute authority over all of his creation. 
If all men have agreed together to defy this glory of God. If all people chose to rebel against this holy majesty of God, it would not diminish his sovereign rule one bit. You hear people saying, well, wouldn't it be awesome, you know, awesome thing for God to rule over my boss at work or my spouse, my unbelieving spouse or my monstrous harsh trials? Listen, brothers and sisters, if the whole earth is full of the glory of God, then God does rule your boss at work your unbelieving spouse at home, and even your worst trials, and there isn't a moment in your life where God sees to rule this world. Second Chronicles 26, Jehoshaphat says, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you. This is why when we preach the gospel to unbelievers, we don't say to them, make Jesus your Lord as though he was not their Lord. No, we say to them, agree with God that he is Lord. Stop trying to rebel against his lordship. Rest upon his will. And one day, the scripture tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that the one who is seated on the throne is indeed Lord of all. This is our holy God. He is an amazing God. He is a majestic God, a sovereign God, an all-powerful God. He is a holy God. That's the second point. So we'll come to the third, the worship of God. Now we... Reverse back, we just go back one step and look at verse 2. And we read, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now, Seraphim, what do we know about these creatures? Who are these creatures? Well, other than the fact that they were covering themselves because they want to hide and just fade away in the background, so the only thing that would be on display is this holy God, apart from this, seraphim, this word seraphim means burning ones or uh, fiery angels. No doubt it speaks of purity. But if we judge by how close These angels are to the throne of God. We can easily deduce that they are the greatest creatures in the universe just by their proximity to the throne of God. 
And we notice that, that they have six wings. Now, why is that? Now, I don't think, I don't believe it's because they fly with two wings and the other four are spare parts. Um, it says, with two he covered his face and with two he covered his feet. I used to be a Sunday school teacher uh, before I was a pastor and I remember I asked uh, some children, what do you think this means? Why is it that they were covering their faces and their feet and a child, I recall, answered and he said, well, it's because they didn't, make up their, they didn't put their makeup in the morning. That's why they were covering their faces. Another one said they, they didn't have time to comb their hair. Um, no, I don't think so. I don't believe that that was the case. This speaks of the splendorous glory of God. If you recall when Moses asked God and said, show me your glory, God replied, no man shall see my face and live. And while my glory passes by, I will cover you with my hand. Why? No creature could endure the sight of the immense glory of God. It's too overwhelming. Whether he's a man or an angel. You know, there's a story that once I heard before, I'm not sure how true it is. If you have doctors, they can verify um, um, whether it's a myth or, or real. But, it, uh, but I heard a story of an Indian who used to worship the sun. And one day he decided to stare at the sun for about t- 10 minutes. And after gazing upon this um, yellow s- circle for 10 minutes, he closed his eyes opened them, and he realized he can never see again. They took him by the hand to see a doctor, and a doctor asked him, and he answered, he explained the situation to him, and the doctor replied, and he said, well, you've burnt your retina because you gazed upon the sun for 10, 10 minutes. I'm not sure how true it is, but who of us would dare to stare at the sun at midday, summer day, for more than five minutes? We wouldn't, would we? And how much all the more? This almighty God sitting on a throne, unveiling his glory. How dare anyone, an angel or a man, to stare at the glory of God? And so out of deep reverence, these angels do not care, sorry, do not dare to look directly upon the Lord. And they judge themselves unworthy, unable to gaze upon the sheer glory of God. Why? Because even though they are fiery angels, and even though they are sinless creatures, and they are the greatest creatures ever live, yet they considered their glory to be way too insignificant compared to the glory of God. And if these angels who exceed us by far in every way recognize that they fall way too short in the sight of this holy God, how much should we sense our unworthiness in His sight? And it says there, 
with two he flew. And why were they hovering? Well, to praise God, ready to serve him and to minister to God. And it's like we're overhearing them saying as they're flapping their wings and they're flying and hovering, God, you are the object of our worship. And you are the object of our service, of our ministry. Yes, even our own lives. Launch us wherever you choose. Dispatch us, Lord. And you notice the result of the calling. Please pay attention to how loud they would have to be. It says the foundations of the thresholds, what? Trembled at the voice of him who called out. These angelic beings were not speaking softly, were they, to each other? I mean, how loud do you have to be for the foundations to shake? They were not whispering the praises of our God. No. They were thundering aloud. They were rumbling and crying aloud, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. They weren't worshipping out of just mere obedience, just external worship. They weren't coming into the scene to worship God yawning and bored out of their brain. No, they were thrilled. They were overjoyed by being in the presence of a holy God. So much that their hearts were enlarged, their will subjected, their mind committed, and even their own emotions were engaged in the worship of a holy God. The ones who are the greatest Creatures ever to be created. The ones that have 2020 vision of the Holy God are so overwhelmed by being in His presence. They view God in the right way. Not us. It is us that ought to change and be like them. Every fabric of their being was in union, declaring the glory of this God. And we can't blame them, can we? We can't. Because the Lord of hosts, whom they worship, no one can challenge. No one could restrain his will. No one could ever oppose his authority. And this is a good lesson that we can learn from, right? As we come into the presence of this awesome God, it's as though Isaiah is calling us to behold him. Behold him. A godly man said once, and I quote, as we see God as he really is, 
our hearts are enlarged. And we are elevated and we are lifted up and we live in high places. There are no prayers that are too hard for him to answer. No circumstances that he's not able to change. No obstacle that is too hard to remove. No heart that is too hard for God to soften. No sinner too hard for God to save. This is where it begins, brothers and sisters. To know the true and the living God. And the more we set our minds now great God is, the less chances we would succumb to the things of this world. And we won't need to be like this world. And the sin of complacency will not ensnare us. I want to ask you this morning, what sort of God are you worshipping? Let us focus on the greatness of our God. Look upon him. Wait upon God. He will amaze you. And if you're not born again, if you have not encountered this holy God, I call upon you to turn away from your sin. This Awesome, wonderful God wrapped himself in flesh one day. He chose to come voluntarily and walked among us for 33 years. And his holy God wrapped himself in flesh. With his awesome power covered it by being a human lived a perfect life, a sinless life, lived a life that you could never live. And after 33 years, he was hung on that tree and he bore the sins of his people and in bearing the sins of his people, he revealed to us what it means that our God is holy in his love that he died for sinful, filthy creatures like us. He died and rose again. And this son of God now seated on the throne with all authority belongs to him. And he is now called the prince of life. What does it mean that God, Jesus Christ, is the prince of life? It means he has authority to grant eternal life to anyone that will come to him. It is this Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was enthroned at that day when Isaiah saw this Jesus offers free salvation to anyone that will come to him. I plead with you this morning. I urge you by the mercies of this holy God to come to saving faith, come to Christ. Because he is such a powerful God. He is able to save the worst kind of sinners. And he's able to save them freely and unconditionally. 
Freely meaning that you don't have to work one bit for God to grant you eternal life in Christ. Unconditionally, meaning that you don't have to be a righteous person. You could be the worst sinful person and God would still accept you and embrace you if you come to Christ. Rest upon that Savior who died and rose again. He is so kind. He is so great. He is such a great Savior. When you come to Him, don't come to Him with your goodness. Don't come to Him and wave your own self-righteousness. He will not accept you. Come with your sins, with your filth, with your own selfish desires and say, God, on the basis of Jesus Christ and what He has done I beg you, have mercy upon me, save me, and Christ will come and he will snatch you and he will save you. Let us pray. Look, God, what an awesome and fearful thing to see you through the eyes of these angels. How is it, Lord, that the angels who have a 20-20 vision of who you are They tremble and they are overwhelmed with joy that they cry out so much, holy, 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 to the point that the foundations of the temple shake. And yet we come yawning and tired and exhausted. and We don't give you the glory as we ought to. Please forgive us, Lord. It is not that The angels need to change the way of their worship. It is us, Lord, that we need to have a clearer view of who you are. We plead with you, Lord, change our hearts. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts. Let us see your goodness. Let us see your power and sovereignty way above any man or any woman. Let us not fear man, but fear you, Lord. You're the one who reigning, who is reigning and seated on that throne. And you are in that throne forever. We devote to you our lives. We worship you. We dedicate all of our lives and the lives of our loved ones to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.